Chapter Eleven of the Stock Monroe Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stark Monroe Letters by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Eleven. Oakley Villas, Birchspool, twenty ninth of May, eighteen eighty two. Birch's Pool is really a delightful place, dear Bertie, and I ought to know something about it, seeing that I have padded a good hundred miles through its streets during the last seven days. Its mineral springs used to be quite the mode a century or more ago, and it retains many traces of its aristocratic past, carrying it with a certain grace too, as an immigre countess might wear the faded dress which had once rustled in Versailles i forget the new roaring suburbs with their outgoing manufactures and their incoming wealth and i live in the queer health-giving old city of the past the wave of fashion has long passed over it but a deposit of dreary respectability has been left behind in the high street you can see the long iron extinguishers upon the railings where the link boys used to put out their torches instead of stamping upon them or slapping them on the pavement as was the custom in less high-toned quarters they are the very high curbstones too so that lady teasel or mrs sneerwell could step out of coach or sedan chair without soiling their dainty satin shoes it brings home to me what an unstable chemical compound man is here are the stage accessories as good as ever while the players have all split up into hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and carbon with traces of iron and silica and phosphorus a tray full of chemicals and three buckets of water there is the raw material of my lady in the sedan chair it's a curious double picture if one could but conjure it up on the one side the high-born bucks the mincing ladies the scheming courtiers pushing and planning and striving every one of them to attain his own petty object then for a jump of a hundred years what is this in the corner of the old vault margarine and clusterine carbonate sulphates and tomains we turn from it in loathing and as we go we carry with us that from which we fly but mind you bertie i have a very high respect for the human body and i hold that it has been unduly snubbed and maligned by divines and theologians our gross frames and our miserable mortal clay are phrases which to my mind partake more of blasphemy than of piety it is no compliment to the creator to depreciate his handiwork whatever theory or belief we may hold about the soul there can i suppose be no doubt that the body is immortal matter may be transformed in which case it may be retransformed but it can never be destroyed if a comet were to strike this globule of ours and to knock it into a billion fragments which were splashed all over the solar system if its fiery breath were to lick up the earth's surface until it was peeled like an orange still at the end of a hundred millions of years every tiniest particle of our bodies would exist in other forms and combinations it is true but still those very atoms which now form the forefinger which traces these words so the child with the wooden bricks will build a wall then strew them on the table then a tower then strew once more and so ever with the same bricks but then our individuality i often wonder whether something of that will cling to our atoms whether the dust of johnny monroe will ever have something of him about it and be separable from that of bertie swanborough 
i think it is possible that we do impress ourselves upon the units of our own structure there are facts which tend to show that every tiny organic cell of which a man is composed contains in its microcosm a complete miniature of the individual of which it forms a part the ovum itself from which we are all produced is as you know too small to be transfixed upon the point of a fine needle and yet within that narrow globe lies the potentiality not only for reproducing the features of two individuals but even their smallest tricks of habit and of thought well if a single cell contains so much perhaps a single molecule and atom has more than we think have you ever had any personal experience of dermoid cysts we had one in cullingworth's practice just before his illness and we were both much excited about it they seem to me to be one of those wee little chinks through which one may see deep into nature's workings in this case the fellow who was a clerk in the post office came to us with a swelling over his eyebrow we opened it under the impression that it was an abscess and found inside some hair and a rudimentary jaw with teeth in it you know that such cases are common enough in surgery and that no pathological museum is without an example but what are we to understand by it so startling a phenomenon must have a deep meaning that can only be i think that every cell in the body has the power latent in it by which it may reproduce the whole individual and that occasionally under some special circumstances some obscure nervous or vascular excitement one of these microscopic units of structure actually does make a clumsy attempt in that direction but my goodness where have i got to all this comes from the birch-pool lamp-post and curbstones and i sat down to write such a practical letter too however i give you leave to be as dogmatic and didactic as you like in return cullingworth says my head is like a bursting capsule with all the seeds getting loose poor seed too i fear but some of it may lodge somewhere or not as fate pleases i wrote to you last on the night that i reached here next morning i set to work upon my task you would be surprised at least i was to see how practical and methodical i can be first of all i walked down to the post office and bought a large shilling map of the town then back i came and pinned this out upon the lodging-house table this done i set to work to study it and to arrange a series of walks by which i should pass through every street of the place you have no idea what that means until you try to do it i used to have breakfast get out about ten walk till one have a cheap luncheon i can do well on threepence walk till four get back and note results on my map i put a cross for every empty house and a circle for every doctor so at the end of that time i had a complete chart of the whole place and could see at a glance where there was a possible opening and what a position there was at each point in the meantime i had enlisted a most unexpected ally on the second evening a card was solemnly brought up by the landlady's daughter from the lodger who occupied the room below on it was inscribed captain whitehall and then underneath in brackets armed transport on the back of the card was written captain whitehall armed transport presents his compliments to dr monroe and would be glad of his company to supper at eight thirty to this i answered dr monroe presents his compliments to captain whitehall armed transport and will be most happy to accept his kind invitation 
what armed transport might mean i had not an idea but i thought it well to include it as he seemed so particular about it himself on descending i found a curious-looking figure in a grey dressing-gown with a purple cord he was an elderly man his hair not quite white yet but well past mouse colour his beard and moustache however were of a yellowish-brown and his face all puckered and shot with wrinkles spare and yet puffy with hanging bags under his singular light blue eyes by god dr munro sir said he as he shook my hand i take it as very kind of you that you should accept an informal invitation i do sir by god this sentence was as it proved a very typical one for he nearly always began and ended each with an oath while the centre was as a rule remarkable for a certain suave courtesy so regular was his formula that i may admit it and you suppose it every time that he opened his mouth a dash here and there will remind you it's been my practice dr munro sir to make friends with my neighbours through life and some strange neighbours i have had by <laughs> sir humble as you see me i have sat with a general on my right and an admiral on my left and my toes up against a british ambassador that was when i commanded the armed transport hegira in the black sea in fifty five burst up in the great gale in balaclava bay sir and not as much left as you could pick your teeth with there was a strong smell of whisky in the room and an uncorked bottle upon the mantelpiece the captain himself spoke with a curious stutter which i put down at first to a natural defect but his lurch as he turned back to his armchair showed me that he had as much as he could carry not much to offer you dr munro sir the hind leg of a duck and a sailor's welcome not royal navy sir though i have a sight better manners than many that are no sir i fly no false colours and put no r n after my name but i'm the queen's servant by <laughs> no mercantile marine about me have a wet sir it's the right stuff and i have drunk enough to know the difference well as the supper progressed i warmed with the liquor and food and i told my new acquaintance all about my plans and intentions i didn't realize how lonely i had been until i found the pleasure of talking he listened to it all with much sympathy and to my horror tossed off a whole tumblerful of neat whisky to my success so enthusiastic was he that it was all i could do to prevent him from draining a second one you'll do it dr munro sir he cried i know a man when i see one and you'll do it there's my hand sir i'm with you you needn't be ashamed to grasp it for by <laughs> though i say it myself it's been open to the poor and shut to a bully ever since i could suck milk yes sir you'll make a good shipmate and i'm <coughs> glad to have you on my poop for the remainder of the evening his fixed delusion was that i had come to serve under him and he read me long rambling lectures about ship's discipline still always addressing me as dr munro sir at last however his conversation became unbearable a foul young man is odious but a foul old one is surely the most sickening thing on earth one feels that the white upon his hair like that upon a mountain should signify a height attained i rose and bade him good-night with a last impression of him leaning back in his dressing-gown a sodden cigar-end in the corner of his mouth his beard all slopped with whisky and his half-glazed eyes looking sideways after me with the leer of a setter i had to go into the street and walk up and down for half an hour before i felt clean enough to go to bed
well i wanted to see no more of my neighbour but in he came as i was sitting at breakfast smelling like a bar parlour with stale whisky oozing at every pore good morning dr munro sir said he holding out a twitching hand i compliment you sir you look fresh fresh and me with a head like a toy shop we had a pleasant quiet evening and i took nothing to hurt but it is the <clears throat> relaxing air of this place that settles me i can't bear up against it last year it gave me the horrors and i expect it will again you're of house-hunting i suppose i start immediately after breakfast i take a cursed interest in the whole thing you may think it a <coughs> impertinence but that's the way i'm made as long as i can steam i'll throw a rope to whoever wants a tow i'll tell you what i'll do dr munroe i'll stand on one tack if you'll stand on the other and i'll let you know if i come across anything that will do there seemed to be no alternative between taking him with me or letting him go alone so i could only thank him and let him have carte blanche every night he would turn up half drunk as a rule having i believe walked his ten or fifteen miles as conscientiously as i had done he came with the most grotesque suggestions once he had actually entered into negotiations with the owner of a huge shop, a place that had been a raper's, with a counter about six feet long. His reason was that he knew an innkeeper who had done very well a little further down on the other side. Poor old armed transport worked so hard that I could not help being touched and grateful. Yet I longed from my heart that he would stop, for he was a most unsavoury agent, and I never knew what extraordinary step he might take in my name he introduced me to two other men one of them a singular-looking creature named turpy who was struggling along upon a wound pension having when only a senior midshipman lost the sight of one eye and the use of one arm through the injuries he received at some unpronounceable pa in the maori war the other was a sad-faced poetical-looking man of good birth as i understood who had been disowned by his family on the occasion of his eloping with the cook his name was Carr, and his chief peculiarity that he was so regular in his irregularities that he could always tell the time of day by the state of befuddlement that he was in. He would cock his head, think over his own symptoms, and then give you the hour fairly correctly. An unusual drink would disarrange him, however. And if you forced the pace in the morning, he would undress and go to bed about tea-time, with a full conviction that all the clerks had gone mad these two strange waifs were among the craft to whom old whitehall had in his own words thrown a rope and long after i had gone to bed i could hear the clink of their glasses and the tapping of their pipes against the fender in the room below well when i had finished my empty house and doctor chart i found that there was one villa to let which undoubtedly was far the most suitable for my purpose in the first place it was fairly cheap forty pounds or fifty with taxes the front looked well it had no garden it stood with a well-to-do quarter upon the one side and the poorer upon the other finally it was almost at the intersection of four roads one of which was the main artery of the town altogether if i had ordered a house for my purpose i could hardly have got anything better and i was thrilled with apprehension lest someone should get before me to the agent i hurried round and burst into the office with a precipitancy which rather startled the demure clerk inside his replies however were reassuring the house was still to let it was not quite the quarter yet but i could enter into possession 
I must sign an agreement to take it for one year, and it was usual to pay a quarter's rent in advance. I don't know whether I turned colour a little. In advance, I said as carelessly as I could. It is usual. Or references? Well, that depends, of course, upon the references. Not that it matters much, said I. Heaven forgive me. Still, if it is the same to the firm, I may as well pay by the quarter, as I shall do afterwards. What names did you propose to give? he asked. My heart gave a bound, for I knew that was all right. My uncle, as you know, won his knighthood in the artillery, and though I have seen nothing of him, I knew that he was the man to pull me out of this tight corner. There's my uncle, Sir Alexander Munro, Lismore House, Dublin, said I. He would be happy to answer any inquiry, and so would my friend Dr. Cullingworth of Bradfield. I brought him down with both barrels. I could see it by his eyes and the curve of his back. I have no doubt that will be quite satisfactory, said he. Perhaps you would kindly sign the agreement? I did so, and drew my hind foot across the Rubicon. The die was cast. Come what might, one Oakley Villas was on my hand for a twelvemonth. Would you like the key now? I nearly snatched it out of his hands. Then away I ran to take possession of my property. Never shall I forget my feelings, my dear Bertie, when the key clicked in the lock and the door flew open. It was my own house, all my very own. I shut the door again, the noise of the street died down, and I had, in that empty dust-strewn hall, such a sense of soothing privacy as had never come to me before. In all my life it was the first time that I had ever stood upon boards which were not paid for by another. Then I proceeded to go from room to room with a delicious sense of exploration. There were two upon the ground floor, sixteen feet square each, and I saw with satisfaction that the wallpapers were in fair condition. The front one would make a consulting room, the other a waiting room, though I did not care to reflect who was most likely to do the waiting. I was in high spirits, and did a step-dance in each room as an official inauguration. Then down a winding wooden stair to the basement, where were kitchen and scullery, dimly lit and asphalt-floored. As I entered the latter I stood staring. In every corner piles of human jaws were grinning at me. The place was a Golgotha. In that half-light the effect was sepulchral but as I approached and picked up one of them, the mystery vanished. They were of plaster of Paris, and were the leavings evidently of the dentist, who had been the last tenant. A more welcome sight was a huge wooden dresser with drawers and a fine cupboard in the corner. It only wanted a table and a chair to be a furnished room. Then I ascended again and went up the first flight of stairs. There were two other good-sized apartments there. One should be my bedroom, and the other a spare room. And then another flight with two more, one for the servant when I had one, and the other for a guest. From the windows I had a view of the undulating grey back of the city, with the bustle of green treetops. It was a windy day, and the clouds were drifting swiftly across the heavens, with glimpses of blue between. I don't know how it was, but as I stood looking through the grimy panes in the empty rooms a sudden sense of my own individuality and of my responsibility to some higher power came upon me, with a vividness which was overpowering. There was a new chapter of my life about to be opened. 
what was to be the end of it i had strength i had gifts what was i going to do with them all the world the street the cabs the houses seemed to fall away and the might of a figure and the unspeakable guide of the universe were for an instant face to face i was on my knees hurled down all against my own will as it were and even then i could find no words to say only vague yearnings and emotions and a heartfelt wish to put my shoulder to the great wheel of good what could i say every prayer seemed based on the idea that god was a magnified man that he needed asking and praising and thanking should the cog of the wheel creak praise to the engineer let it rather cog harder and creak less yet i did i confess try to put the agitation of my soul into words i meant it for a prayer but when i considered afterwards the supposing that's and in case offs with which it was sprinkled it must have been more like a legal document and yet i felt soothed and happier as i went downstairs i tell you this bertie because if i put reason above emotion i would not have you think that i am not too open to attacks of the latter also i feel that what i say about religion is too cold and academic i feel that there should be something warmer and sweeter and more comforting but if you ask me to buy this at the price of making myself believe a thing to be true which all that is nearest the divine in me cries out against then you are selling your opiates too high i am a volunteer for god's own forlorn hope and i'll clamber up the breach as long as i think i can see the flag of truth waving in front of me well my next two cares were to get drugs and furniture the former i was sure i could obtain on long credit while the latter i was absolutely determined not to get into debt over i wrote to the apothecary's company giving the names of cullingworth and of my father and ordering twelve pounds worth of tinctures infusions pills powders ointments and bottles cullingworth must i should think have been one of their very largest customers so i knew very well that my order would meet with prompt attention there remained the more serious matter of the furniture i calculated that when my lodgings were paid for i might without quite emptying my purse expend four pounds upon furniture not a large allowance for a good-sized villa that would leave me a few shillings to go on with and before they were exhausted cullingworth's pounds would come in those pounds however would be needed for the rent so i could hardly reckon upon them at all as far as my immediate wants went i found in the columns of the birchspool post that there was to be a sale of furniture that evening and i went down to the auctioneer's rooms accompanied much against my will by captain whitehall who was very drunk and affectionate by god dr munro sir i'm the man that's going to stick to you i'm only an old sailorman sir with perhaps more liquor than sense but i'm the queen's servant and touch my pension every quarter day i don't claim to be r n but i'm not merchant service either here i am rotting in lodgings but by <laughs> dr munro sir i carried seven thousand stinking turks from varna to balaklava bay i'm with you dr munro and we put this thing through together we came to the auction room and we stood on the fringe of the crowd waiting for our chance presently up went a very neat little table i gave a nod and got it for nine shillings then three rather striking-looking chairs black wood and cane bottoms 
four shillings each i gave for those then a metal umbrella stand four and sixpence that was a mere luxury but i was warming to the work a job lot of curtains all tied together in a bundle went up somebody bid five shillings the auctioneer's eye came round to me and i nodded mine again for five and sixpence then i bought a square of red drugget for half a crown a small iron bed for nine shillings three water-colour paintings spring the banjo player and windsor castle for five shillings a tiny fender half a crown a toilet seat five shillings another very small square-topped table three and sixpence whenever i bid for anything whitehall thrust his blackthorn up in the air and presently i found him doing so on my behalf when i had no intention of buying i narrowly escaped having to give fourteen and sixpence for a stuffed macaw in a glass case it would do to hang in your hall dr munro sir said he when i remonstrated with him i should have to hang myself in my hall soon if i spent my money like that said i i've got as much as i can afford now and i must stop when the auction was over i paid my bill and had my goods hoisted on to a trolley the porter undertaking to deliver them for two shillings i found that i had overestimated the cost of furnishing for the total expense was little more than three pounds we walked round to oakley villa and i proudly deposited all my goods in the hall and here came another extraordinary example of kindness of the poorer classes the porter when i had paid him went out to his trolley and returned with a huge mat of oakum as ugly a thing as i have ever set eyes upon this he laid down inside my door and then without a word brushing aside every remonstrance or attempt at thanks he vanished away with his trolley into the night next morning i came round to my house my house my boy for good and all after paying off my landlady her bill came to more than i expected for i only had breakfast and tea always dining out as i majestically expressed it however it was a relief to me to get it settled and to go round with my box to oakley villas an ironmonger had fixed my plate onto the railings for half a crown the evening before and there it was glittering in the sun when i came round it made me quite shy to look at it and i slunk into the house with a feeling that every window in the street had a face in it but once inside there was so much to be done that i did not know where i should turn to first i bought a one and nine penny broom and set to work you notice that i am precise about small sums because just there lies the whole key of the situation in the yard i found a zinc pail with a hole in it which was most useful for by its aid i managed to carry up all the jaws with which my kitchen was heaped then with my new broom my coat hung on a gas bracket and my shirt sleeves turned to the elbow i cleaned out the lower rooms and the hall brushing the refuse into the yard after that i did as much for the upper floor with the result that i brought several square yards of dust down into the hall again and undid my previous cleaning this was disheartening but at least it taught me to begin at the furthest point in future when i had finished i was as hot and dirty as if it were half-time at a football match i thought of our tidy charwoman at home and realized what splendid training she must be in then came the arranging of the furniture the hall was easily managed for the planks were of dark colour which looked well of themselves my oaken mat and my umbrella stand were the only thing in it 
but i bought three pegs for sixpence and fastened them up at the side completing the effect by hanging my two hats upon them finally as the expense of bare floor was depressing i fixed one of my curtains about halfway down it draping it back so that it had a kind of oriental look and excited a vague idea of suits of apartments beyond it was a fine effect and i was exceedingly proud of it from that i turned to the most important point of all the arrangement of my consulting-room my experience with cullingworth had taught me one thing at least that patients care nothing about your house if they only think that you can cure them once get that idea into their heads and you may live in a vacant stall in a stable and write your prescriptions on the manger still as this was for many a day to come to be the only furnished room in my house it was worth a little planning to get it set out to the best advantage my red drugget i laid out in the centre and fastened it down with brass-headed nails it looked much smaller than i had hoped a little red island in an ocean of deal-board or a postage stamp in the middle of an envelope in the centre of it i placed my table with three medical works on one side of it and my stethoscope and dresser's case upon the other one chair went with the table of course and then i spent the next ten minutes in trying to determine whether the other two looked better together a dense block of chairs as it were or scattered so that the casual glance would get the idea of numerous chairs i placed them finally one on the right and one in front of the table then i put down my fender and nailed spring the banjo players and windsor castle on to three of the walls with the mental promise that my first spare half-crown should buy a picture for the fourth in the window i placed my little square table and balanced upon it a photograph with an ivory mounting and a nice splush frame which i had brought in my trunk finally i found a pair of dark brown curtains among the job lot which i had bought at the sale and these i put up and drew pretty close together so that a subdued light came into the room which toned everything down and made the dark corners look furnished when i had finished i really do not believe that any one could have guessed that the total contents of the room came to about thirty shillings then i pulled my iron bed upstairs and fixed it in the room which i had from the first determined upon as my bedchamber i found an old packing-case in the yard a relic of my predecessor's removal and this made a very good hand-wash-stand for my basin and jug when it was all fixed up i walked swelling with pride through my own chambers giving a touch here and a touch there until i had it perfect i wish my mother could see it or on second thoughts i don't for i know that her first act would be to prepare gallons of hot water and to holystone the whole place down from garret to cellar and i know by my own small experience what that means well that's as far as i've got as yet what trivial trivial stuff interesting to hardly a soul under heaven save only about three yet it pleases me to write as long as i have your assurance that it pleases you to read pray give my kindest remembrances to your wife and to camelford also if he should happen to come your way he was on the mississippi when last i heard End of chapter 11